And we're back again from the Blue Corner. My name is Dennis, and this week is a special week um, for a few reasons. Um, obviously, I've taken another trip around the sun, and I have officially hit the 40s, the midlife crisis. Um, we also had Kabib retire this week um, at 29 and 0. Um, we might talk about that. I don't know. And... Um, Yes, yeah, Sydney summers are starting to feel like winter, but um, that, is, that is what it is. Um, today I have got a very special guest, um, special in, in, in many senses. Um, uh, I was just speaking to him before the podcast and uh, he gave me a, a good glimpse into, you know, doing some research before you ask questions. Um, I first met him up for the uh, Tough Smashes series up in, in Queensland where I had approached him for an interview and one of my first, I guess, I don't know if it was the first question but probably second or third question was how he was enjoying Australia only to be told he's been living in Australia for a little while. And um, it really taught me a valuable lesson to do a little bit of research before you uh, jump on the mic. Um, but as a professional fighter, he's had 71, 72 Closer to 80 professional fights. He's fought for multiple organisations. Um, when it comes to manscaping, I can honestly say he is the greatest of all time. Um, and yeah, and he's also now our national head coach for the uh, IMAF team. Um, he's a, actually, I was going to say he's about to start his first Winter Warriors series, but it officially started this week. Um, I'm talking about Brian Ebersole. Um, he joins me via video call. Um, how have you been and how has 2020 been shaping up for you? Uh, it's been quite a, a strange year. Um, obviously, like the gyms got shut down. Um, IMAF uh, has been really just hamstrung the whole year with the international aspect. So even if certain countries get back online, you can't really just you know cross-pollinate nation to nation. Um, the UFC has got a pretty unique thing going on where they're testing people coming in and, and going out and they're super, you know, isolated in that bubble. Um, uh, the Wimpter Warrior series that I was coaching at, at Customized Fitness Solutions in Kiriwi alongside John Levin, you know, that got interrupted. So there's a lot of people that really found it hard to come back and finish the season. Um, and then obviously there's a finale at the end that um, can't take place because we can't put a crowd in New South Wales uh, into an event. Um, the CSA here, Combat Sports Authority, has just sent out an email uh, last Tuesday saying that they'll accept applications for events, though the crowd restrictions are going to make it very, very difficult um, to host an indoor event uh, and, and not lose money. So um, it's one thing just to throw fights in a rubber room and I think a lot of us would still show up, a lot of us coaches and athletes would still show up to compete. But uh, when you really have cage set up, production costs, uh, venue hire, tables, chairs, blah, 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 like you, you got to put some bums in seats to pay for all that. And if there's not enough bums in the seats, then it's, it's hard to really pull the cab off the rank and, and take that drive. So um, New South Wales is, has been a bit, a bit shy there. Queensland, thankfully, where I matchmake XFC, uh, has been able to pull off a show outdoor in August, and we're going to throw an indoor show in December. So there's at least a little bit of excitement there. And, um, you know, the Queensland government announced that they're going to likely allow border passes. So as long as you apply and tell them you're going from New South Wales over to Queensland, there's no quarantine. 
It's kind of like the QR codes uh, inside the restaurant tables and cafes. Basically, that's what we're doing, saying we're getting on a flight, we're going there. How long are you going to be there? When are you coming back? So, um, yeah, XFC is December 12th, and um, I'll actually be able to put a few of my fighters on this time and go myself. So, um, it's starting to come back to normal, but, yeah, it, it's, it's been a very, very hamstrung year in many regards. I think December 12th you'll be fine. Um, look, the, the, the general conversation at the moment is that the Queensland state elections is this weekend. And everyone's kind of saying that once the state election passes and whoever gets elected, they'll, they'll start reopening the borders. They, at the moment, a lot of the discussion is it is a political kind of stance. Um, so a lot can change, as I say, especially by the 12th. I mean, we've got all of November, so by, by the 12th of December, I think we'll be fine. We'll be crossing those borders. Um, yeah, they, their their website, on the government website had like October 1st, November 1st, and December 1st differences in what they plan on doing, um, you know, kind of stages. And even by the November 1st um, cutoff, it should allow travel over with no quarantine. So um, I'm pretty sure we're safe as far as getting over there unless there's a catastrophic, you know, outbreak. But I think, yeah, with the CSA now, I think they are actually allowing crowds. I mean, as, as you said, it will be limited to the, to the amount of crowds, um, social distancing, because I think the, the, the email that got sent around said, um, you know, they'll, they'll approve applications, but you have to have a COVID safe plan. And I, I assume that's to do with, yeah. you know, spacing and everything like that. But I mean, look, um, I, I do... And that's perfect. So, I mean, you some of these events have like good tie-ins with certain venues and it's it's not always accessible for an MMA show to go into a, you know, like a concert hall, like a bigger venue, you know, for the first time, especially. And they've just sent that email last week. So let's say an application gets approved tomorrow. I'm seven weeks away from a December 7 show. And I've done a lot of work as a matchmaker beforehand. And the promoters have done a lot of work in the last few weeks as well. So to start something tomorrow and try to get it done before Christmas is going to be really tight so it basically opens things up for next year and the common industry standard is most shows don't do anything in january most shows don't do anything before valentine's day so march or late february becomes that that first weekend that everyone fights over but i will say we i mean as specific i'm not with the pro fighting but with the the whim to warrior like i i wonder if you know i mean i guess it's finding a gym that's big enough but i i, I wonder if the option would be to to find a gym um to yeah like not have any crowds obviously not have the venue costs not have the seat cost and and do it at say if your gym's big enough to set up a cage inside the gym and and then do it as a a streaming um kind of pay-per-view model as well if that if that yeah. is an option i mean i know mick from the the sydney series was trying to do it but his problem was that the CSA uh, just wouldn't commission it regardless of streaming non-streaming yeah. crowds no crowds they were like no and then two weeks later, they send out an email going, we're accepting applications. So it was kind of like, uh, That's it. you know, it's, it's, it's all up in the air. But um, look, we'll get to the whim to worry a little, a little uh, further along. I, I want to start with you, like, because obviously you've had a vast, you know, number of years of experience when it comes to the, the martial arts. I think when, when did you originally start? It was, it was early 2000s or even 2000, wasn't it? Or? Yeah, so my first fight was June 10, 2000. 
Okay. So yeah, 20 years ago. And so what, what originally got you into, <sighs> I guess, I know you're showing your age now, but uh, what, 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 originally, what, what originally got, um, got you in, into mixed martial arts? Because, I mean, look, now martial arts is, is kind of like, uh, you know, some claim mainstream, some are still saying it's not quite there yet. I mean, we're definitely there. But, yeah. you know, in the early 2000s, you know, it. I mean, the money wasn't really there. The the you know the the kind of like it had a, a stigma around it and stuff like that. So, what originally got you, um, I guess, in into the the world of mixed martial arts? Well, I really lucked into it. Um, so I'd wrestled my whole life, and I remember there was a summer um, where I was riding across town. Um, to play with, with mates, football or baseball or bat, whatever it was, right? And I ended up coming across a group of guys uh, playing basketball. And they were like, they were competitive. Not all of us were good. You know what I mean? Like, we all had like, at least a strong point. You know, the guy that couldn't shoot the ball could at least play defense or rebound or, you know, Dennis Rodman or something, right? Um, and the guy that couldn't get a rebound could at least hit a set shot if no one was in his face kind of thing. But maybe he couldn't dribble to save his life. So it was always like fun, like picking teams and doing all that. But I ended up grouping in with these guys and, and because they were competitive, I really made an effort to get out to their neighborhood all the time and try to play over the summer and come to find out a couple of them trained martial arts. So there was like Taekwondo, one guy did Kempo and it was a bit more like old school, like Maraque boards and just a bit tougher. He had hard shins. Another guy was actually kind of a point fighting um, competitor and like traveled and, and did a bit of it, had some big trophies in the garage and things like that. So the UFC had come out and a couple of the, the other guys like started drifting in, wanting to do the grappling and be playful. Like obviously we're not going to go hit each other. You know, we're 15 to 18 years old at the time. Um, so it became like a grappling thing that we started, you know, we play basketball, we grapple, we play basketball, we grapple. And because I wrestled, um, it was actually the point fighting guy that showed like the first sign of like, I'm frustrated. Like, you know, I can't, can't win a match. Like you'd never take me down before I could hit you. So the age old argument of like, you can't take me down, even though you've trained your entire life to take people down that know the only thing you're trying to do is take them down and they defend themselves from only the takedown and they stand a certain way and they move a certain way and they put in a lot of hours, but yes, of course your upright kickboxing stance is going to be something new to me. Okay. So we did that whole experiment and I took him down a fair few times and we got that over with. And then it turned into more like back to the collaborative, like, all right, well, how about I try to box you playfully and you try to wrestle me. And I knew like, if I went for ham and he's never wrestled, it's going to be really awkward because even though I'm not good, I'll hit him eventually. So it was very playful for me, and then he'd try to wrestle, and I'd try to stay playful because if I wanted to put my hips down, I probably could have. You know, I was an 18-year-old kid, that 17-year-old kid never wrestled. So um, it, it became like a playful, like, back and forth, and we'd be watching fights, trying to break things down, and, you know, we didn't have, like, a John Danaher around. You know what I mean? So we're just trying arm bars and throwing up triangles and, and doing our thing. Um, and eventually, when I went off to college, Matt Hughes was my wrestling coach. He was an assistant coach at Eastern Illinois University. And um, there ended up being something about that room. I don't know what it was, but we were not like Iowa or Oklahoma State, you know, like where Cormier came from or where Dan Gable coached. We were just a ragtag, like, 
ruffian group of kids um, that wrestled Division One, but like we were on the lower end of Division One, like a smaller school compared to like the bigger, like where Penn State and Kale Sanderson are now. Um, so we never had like the favorite in the nation. We didn't have like a bunch of All-Americans. We had scrappy guys that, you know, if given a, an opportunity, could capitalize and win a match against someone they weren't supposed to beat. Um, we had a lot of fighters come out of that room. You know, I have a, a heavyweight teammate that was a senior when I was a freshman. So he was grade 12, I was nine. He went off to college and I got to wrestle two years with him there because, you know, you get five years of college if you take one off, you call it a red shirt, and you athletically sit back for a year. Um, so he got to the UFC before I did, funny enough, and, and did really well. Um, I've got a teammate that was the PFL champion, won the million-dollar tournament at middleweight. Um, four or five other guys ended up being um, UFC fighters out of that room, So and, and plenty of Bellator and, and the like. And the, the team got cut about three years after I was out of college anyway. So it would have been really neat to see, without any cohesive effort, none of us trained MMA together. You know, we all went back home and did our thing and ended up separately getting into MMA. Um, but it would have been really neat to see, like, after we set that very ad hoc, scattered legacy for that room, what would have ended up happening to that room when people go, hey, like, we don't have a bunch of All-American wrestlers, but these guys are pretty competitive and then went on to become UFC stars or Bellator stars or PFL champions. You know, how would that have changed, like, recruiting? And how would that have changed, like, off-season wrestling? Like, wrestling's four or five months a year. What are you going to do with the other six or seven? Would guys have started training jiu-jitsu and boxing at a local gym? You know, would a gym have just popped up uh, in, the, in the little downtown, like the quaint little downtown area? You know, it, would one of the old wrestlers have opened his own gym nearby? You know, like, it, it would have been really neat to kind of see if that program hadn't been shut down by the NCAA and like, you know, Title IX and trying to be equality for men and women and money coming into sports. Um, had that not all kind of coalesced into the cutting of a lot of wrestling programs, it would have been really cool to watch. So I kind of lucked into it with friends back home. I had my inspiration, obviously. Matt Hughes had a fight like my freshman year. Me and my roommate went and watched him. Um, and I ended up having my first fight in that very same gym that I went and watched Matt. Um, but it was always going to happen. Whether or not I wrestled at EIU, I really think I still would have had a fight because there was that burning question. Once that guy brought up the whole, you could never take me down before I hit you, what if it was like Mike Tyson? What if it was someone stockier, bigger, scarier? You know what I mean? That was saying that to me. Would I still feel confident? Would I still be eager to have a, have a go? So there's always that lingering question of like, okay, it works, but like how well does it work for me? Can I do it? Like and when stuff it, works, math, math, math works, but not everyone's good at it. And when it, when, when people it, just stare at the board. When it comes to, to the wrestling side of things, like – it's the one thing that I always say about Australia, we kind of lack it a little bit. I mean, um, I, I know I spoke to Richie Walsh about it and, you know, he, he said, obviously, we've got the Wrestling Foundation, which is one place now that you can go and, and, and you know, he, he kind of spoke about that. But it's the one thing that I think we lack here, you know, like we've got great jiu-jitsu gyms, we've got great striking gyms, you know, um, and, and you see that as well, like when you look at like who, like what our country produces as in the Robert Whittakers and even now uh, City Kickboxing with Izzy and stuff like that, like we've got really good overall exposure, except wrestling is always missing there a little bit, right? Like, 
and I mean in comparison to, I guess, America, because it's such a predominant, uh, I guess, sport in in the schooling system or in the college system that it, it it's brought in from a very, I guess, young age. You know, a lot of you guys know how to wrestle really, really well. But obviously, you've experienced it on on both sides. What 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 is your kind of opinion on a the importance of wrestling when it comes to mixed martial arts, and two where where you feel you know we we sit in Australia. Um, so very big question. I'll try to attack it from a few angles. Like the importance of wrestling in MMA is is on the simplest level, like the ability to dictate. Maybe not always choose because things happen, but. To, to have a fair chance of dictating where the fight occurs. So if I tell myself I want to take someone down, like it's, it's going to happen. Now, whether or not I take 10 punches and a knee to the ribs on the way in, and, and my persistence, you know, maybe Khabib persistence trying to get there, you know what I mean? Or even Ben Askren, like you'd see Ben miss a shot, but he'd be next to an ankle and he'd dive at the ankle. And sometimes when he got it, it was, oh my God, like that was crazy. And when he missed, it looked silly. Like he's belly down. He just missed an ankle and he's got to stand back up and dust himself off and start again. But he gets right back after the guy. So that pressure, you know, we just saw Khabib do it to Gaethje. Like Gaethje was probably between rounds, <gasps> even though he did some damage. But he was tired because it was a stressful, stressful, high-paced first round. And so I to have be to able say, to put that pace on someone sorry be used to it is, is i just want to inter- interject there the the one thing that amazed me with kabib on that one was just the sheer pressure right like and 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 i think that's where gaichi even after getting hit but like gaichi he was constantly Forward. backwards 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 and and it was like i like i mean look we 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 know kabib has always been a monster when it comes to wrestling but that pressure that he put on over the weekend yeah. was insane like he just did not allow Gaethje to take one step forward. It was constantly, and as you say, even when he was taking a shot, he was moving forward, and and it was it was incredible to see. And and yeah, I totally agree. It was, you know, Gaethje after the first round, you could see he was he was sucking him in. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the ones where like it doesn't matter that you're not always under like threat of like getting cracked or threat of getting taken down. The fact that like treat it like a chessboard or a checkersboard that you have to jump, not walk, not bounce and saunter. Like you have to jump sharply to the next square to avoid being grabbed, which is obviously what you're trying to avoid. And your jump, like that footwork under stress is so hard. I get so many people that sort of laugh at me when I tell them like just being able to like walk properly in a boxing stance is going to be your biggest challenge for your first six months. You know, and you get boxing coaches that put towels around necks and make guys just move and not throw punches and concentrate on their feet for a reason. You know, they're building a real foundation. Um, but that stress of always having to be on and jumping and small movements and, and obviously the biggest muscles of your body are springing back and forth while he just kind of Jason Voorhees is at you and just walks. You know, it's stressful. It's even without the action, even if they didn't really – you know, grab wrists and, you know, get into collar ties and there weren't many strikes thrown. Just being chased around like that and Khabib's taking more straight line action chasing, Gaethje has to run that outside. So he's he's probably doing three times the distance and he's, he's doing it under, you know, pressure. And again, again, jumping, jumping, jumping. So to be able to do that to someone and, and put him under that pressure and, and 
push that pace because wrestlers are used to it. There's so many wrestlers that have gotten away from wanting to play that game because they know how taxing it is and they stop, to, they stop trusting. They think, oh, if I do get myself that tired, then it'll hit me later. But he's not going to have anything on it later. <laughs> like, if you're that tired, he must be that tired with you. You know, it's, it's weird how some of the guys like Akoscheck and, and Jake Ellenberger, for example, and even Tyrone Woodley, like, it's like they kind of got away from that. And I understand Tyrone Woodley maybe not wanting to wrestle a Usman or a Colby Covington and just saying, hey, let, let, let's, make this a, let's make this a boxing thing. Um, because a wrestler versus a wrestler, like, if you are on that slight down end of that, that grapple, that 10% that difference in energy can be all the difference in the world. You know, you give up a takedown in the second round and you've busted your butt in the first round, you might not get back up. Plus, you've got to you play know, we've to all you. been ridden. You, you, you got to play to your strengths, right? So there I, I see, say, Covington Woodley. I'm like, okay, the wrestling is, is, is a chess match. But then you look like yeah. the striking power, the sheer power. Woodley's got to go, well, I, I've, I've probably got that knockout power, right? So you would play yeah. to that purely because you feel like you have the bigger advantage. But let me ask you this. When it comes to wrestling, and, and look, I, I, I don't like to throw the whole goat out there because you know whether John Jones whether it's Izzy or whatever but when it comes to to the wrestling sense do you feel that Khabib's the greatest to ever do it yeah yeah and and yeah. and and why do you what what sets him apart from the rest of them um so George St. Pierre did a great job with timing and he got a lot of clean takedowns but he didn't force the wrestling game all the time um but the difference, I think, between the results that George saw, I mean, he got a lot of takedowns on a lot of wrestlers that were supposedly better than him. Um, but he didn't have the ground control. And I wouldn't say it was a jiu-jitsu thing that Khabib beat him on or, or whatnot. Like, Khabib wasn't passing guard better than um, George St. Pierre. George St. Pierre had a really awesome system from Danaher, and he used it really well. And then when he changed off to his second system, you know, that was very solid as well. So his A and his B pathway to pass guard were both very good. But Khabib rarely got into guard. So he completed his takedowns and landed half guard side control. I think, and I think stats, if we watched and, and took score, would back that up a very high percentage of the time, especially compared to other athletes. So to be able to do that um, changes the whole game. For you like you're under constant threat of getting taken down but once you hit the mat you're not even in guard you can't even use your hands to defend yourself half the time he's got you wrapped and pinned or he's got you wrapped and pinned or he's got both legs together you know what i mean like you know all you're trying to do is push on his knees and um it's it was just a different different awareness i wouldn't i wouldn't even say he was physically better i think he just built a better game and I think, I mean, DC always mentions it, that he, he's good at chaining things together as well. So he's a good wrestler, but apparently, uh, I'm assuming that just means transition, but like DC always well, talks about chain wrestling. Like when you run into resistance as a wrestler, you have a couple choices, you know, and, and the two simplest ones are, are to try to run through that brick wall and the other is to try to find your way over or around it, you know, to, to bypass it. And a lot of guys run through the brick wall too hard and they end up getting their their whole attempt shut down because that, that becomes the, the first and only move they try. 
If you stop Khabib's double, he's going to change it to a single and then maybe back to a double and maybe to a body lock and then and then and then and then. He doesn't stop wrestling even when he takes you down. He continues wrestling. Some people take someone down and then they kind of lay for a minute and just expect like a jiu-jitsu position to happen for them without micro movement. Where Khabib sort of never stopped. Like he'd have his shoulder in your guts and he'd have you pass through and he'd have the legs but you could always see his feet moving and walking and trying to stack your legs and trying to keep your feet off the ground so you couldn't hip escape or stand, looking for an arm to trap, trying to climb the body. You know, it was just never, it was never just this, I've got the takedown, my job's done. You know, so it was, it was just constant millimeter by millimeter movement to his end game all the time. I'll tell you what I found crazy about that fight though. Uh, the, the next day, the judges' scorecards came out and two out of the three... Two out of the three it, it, actually gave one. it to Gaethje. How, I, 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 did some damage. Landed some big leg kicks. I but mean, he was on the back foot. He nearly had the arm bar at the end of it. Like I, I was like, I really don't know what's going on there, right? Like it's yeah. But yeah. Um, I have to it's say, look, when you, have to, when you have to do that, when you have to go ten nine, and you have to cut it at five minutes, like I was joking the other day with um, the demolition promoter. Um, over in Melbourne. So he was writing me having a bit of a laugh and fighting came up and dot, dot, dot. And, and I said, the only way I'd ever fight again is if it was just a straight 10-minute fight. You know, I'm old. I don't want to do 15 or 25. You know, I go, I go all these breaks and stand-ups and all this this stuff, da, 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 da. And um, he's like, who would you fight? And I'm like, well, Bob Sapp or someone similar. I'm not trying to be serious. You know, it's like, like don't, don't get it twisted. I go, I'm not chasing Rob Whitaker right now. Don't worry. Or Kyle Noak. Like, I don't want to get hit, but um, that whole, like, at five minutes, whatever happens, let's just erase that and start over. Like, the purest in me is just, it's so awkward. And I get it with wrestling. Like, we put each other on our back, and you're almost pinning someone, and the buzzer goes off. But I think that adds to the thrill of wrestling, in a sense. And I think it does it in a way that's not as dangerous. Where MMA, it's it's one of them ones where like people can get seriously hurt. So you've got Justin Gaethje mounted, almost armbarred, and then we're going to stand back up and hand Justin Gaethje a set of nunchucks and a katana and let him come back at you with weapons again. Like, wait, no, I've just I've just disarmed him and tied him up. You know what I mean? Like, even if I sit on top of him for twenty minutes and wait for the police to show up. And wait for the the twenty five minute buzzer, take my title and go home. But like, it's it's so strange to me. And then you have referees that will stand people up from side control in half guard because they're not doing anything. Well, he he's control. He's not doing anything. Like I've well, had my well, forearm buried six centimeters into someone's neck before and had a ref stand me up. I'm I, like I'm I, choking I, him right now. I know it doesn't look like a cool move, but he is not having fun. I, I think it's to do Why with education, and it's the one thing that I uh, uh, say with people that go through the Winter Warrior series, right, is that before the Winter Warrior series, a lot of these people, you know, because it's their first sort of experience, you know, they may be the type of people that exactly the, the thing you were just talking about, that being the crowd booing because they feel like there's a lack of action. After you go through a series like that and you at least learn the little bits of control, you know, and, and little adjustments that you make, cage control, this and that. I, I think 
the same goes with a lot of the refs. Like I, I find that some refs, if they've got like a good jujitsu base and, and, and so forth, they allow that ground action to continue a lot more where a lot of these other refs that have come across from boxing or whatever, they just see it as in there's two guys lying on the cr- uh, ground. Then they hear the crowd boo a little, right? And then they're like, okay, let's stand them up. So I, I, I totally agree, but I think it's an education thing. Um, how you change that, I have no idea, but... Uh, you know, everyone's got their background and, and I just feel like it, it, it's really predominant on what that ref's background is on how he's going to ref that fight. Yeah, I'll even take that a step further with the bias. Like, I've seen it where it's biased toward the athlete itself, not so much the ref's background, but, like, they'll give Damian Maya more time off of his back. So he'll shut someone down, which is the first step, right? Where if, like, a tie to Avasa shuts someone down, and it's boring, they'll stand them up. When Maya shuts them down, they're like, oh, now the game's about to start. But it's been the same 45 seconds of action trying to tie up an arm, trying to break the guy's posture, trying to get the overhook. But then they'll let Damian Maya continue for the next three minutes, but they'll stand Tai Tuivasa up. Or Randy Couture against the cage. They'll leave Randy there for five minutes. I had Chris Tagunani like, I just got my hands locked around John Howard, double underhooks, up into the back of his neck, up against the cage. I just, 20, 20 seconds against the cage, just got double underhooks, finally locked my hands. He broke us up. And is that, is that what like, is, how, as, a, as a fighter, is that- He's soul, a wrestling referee. Is, is that soul crushing? Like when, when, when you get to that, like, you know, I mean, it's the one thing I say with wrestling. I mean, the, the great thing there is that you guys are taught very early on to to enjoy the grind. And, and, and I think that's the one thing I take out of the wrestlers is that they're mind strong. They're very mind strong compared to good, like... Good things don't come easy. But you know what I mean? If I want a good case, position against someone staunch, it doesn't come easy. Yeah, but so in a case like that, like how, how much wind does that take out of you? If, if you know, you, you've fought for this, this position... And then, as you say, twenty seconds later, the rest like, all right, let's 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 give it back to the other guy. Well, like, I mean, you're implementing your game plan. You're doing the right thing. And again, talking about giving the nunchuck and katana back to Gaethje, like John Howard was a dangerous dude and had decent jujitsu. It wasn't going to be a, a cakewalk on the ground if I got the takedown, but it was going to be better for me. So to have to back up and look at this guy, super athletic, hard leg kicks. You know what I mean? Like big mean hands like to to have to enter that again you know like it's not exactly lisa simpson doing the windmill you know what i mean like it's a serious situation so it's just stressful to have to again like like jump it's not like you can really just walk in there like i've had a couple in the ufc where i was able to walk in on people because they were between punches or they thought i was going to punch and they were back in their shell you know what i mean but um again that's a gift that you you know the luck that you create for yourself through hard work and, and a bit of cunning and gamesmanship. But to have to start that over again, like that is the most stressful part of a fight when you, the first, especially the first time coming out, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Once you get going, you're in a flow, but that flow can very much be interrupted by a referee making a decision like that. That has nothing to do with the action. There's no reason to separate two fighters in a five minute round, regardless of what they're doing, unless there's a foul. It so, doesn't so, matter what so you're, you're, it's you're, not your job. So you reckon let it go regardless? So like even if there is, I guess, like a minute of inaction, you're I, going, no, 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 you let that go, yeah? I have never seen a soccer referee force someone 
to move forward with the ball. They can pass laterally and backwards all day long. The only thing in basketball that makes you do anything is a 24-second shot clock. You don't have to, no referee is saying, hey, Michael Jordan, shoot that ball now. Michael can go by the rules and go, I've got 12 seconds on the shot clock. I'll do what I want. I was going to say, you, never you do seen, have the shot clock. I've never seen offense forced. I've never seen an NFL team be forced to throw the ball versus run the ball, which is boring and slow. I guess. The Chicago Bears, when they won the title in 85, ran the ball for three yards a play for 100 yards. Now, that's 33 plays. Like that's uh, It's a bit slow where you get Tom Brady – Three passes, three plays, eighty yards, touchdown. Everyone's happy. It's exciting and it's fun. I I, I guess though Good ways with, to go about with, it with this sport. Like I mean, it's all about forcing the action, right? When you when you look at obviously as you've just mentioned with the ref, but also if you look at the pay structure, right? So the fact that you double your your purse by by winning, and then you've got the performance of the nights. It's it's all about. You know, you want someone to go out there because I, I I've said that. But for you can go out, you can go out and fight your butt off like that and try to get a performance bonus and not get it, and get hurt and damaged and maybe lose a close decision, versus going out there and John Fitching someone, taking them down, beating them up, winning. You get your your purse, you double your payday. Which is it? Do you want the extra twenty grand to win or thirty grand to win, or do you want to try to maybe be exciting and get fifty grand? But you might not win, and, and you then, take damage, and and then be excited and get the fifty grand plus the extra twenty if you win, right? So like that, that maybe, they're, maybe. There's, but it, it is a massive. But some gamble. guys are making, some guys are making way less. You know, some guys are on you know ten and ten. So getting that fifty sounds cool, but losing doesn't sound cool because you get cut, and then your payday on the other side of the ten and ten doesn't go to fifteen and fifteen or twelve and twelve or whatever. You know what I mean? So it's in the end, just do the best for you, like. Go fight your best. Like Damian Maya says it. I want to get in there and not get hurt. I don't even really want to hurt the other guy. I want to have a clinical, like beautiful, artistic performance. Now let me and ask Sometimes you. they don't let people have that chance to do that because, again, I've been stood up for Mount. You know what I mean? I've seen some bad ones in the UFC and, and other, other organizations. Like it, it's not fun. And so let me ask you this, because you mentioned it before, like the, the, the new kind of league around is the, the PFL. How, how do you find that format in, in regards to like, you know, they're all kind of fighting this tournament for the $1 million paycheck at the end rather than having your 10-10s and stuff like that? How, like, are you a fan of um, the way PFL are running their, their kind of system? So I, I don't know what they pay guys. Like, say it's an eight-man tournament. There's four guys in round one that lose. I don't know if they walk away with a thousand, two thousand. I don't. I don't know. I, I do know. <clears throat> again, Lewis Taylor, my my college roommate, college teammate at EIU, he won the million dollar tournament. Um, and amazing. But whether it was for a million dollars or not, I think the tournament structure suits a lot of real athletes. So in America, we run everything through the schools. And everything is a pyramid. So you have every school, every athlete has a chance to, to play. You get a regular season, which, you know, turns into, like, if you're talented, it turns into, like, the practice bit. It's your warm-up. Even if you lose a couple games or matches or whatever the sport is, right? It's all about getting to peak performance by the end of the year to do the tournaments. So right away, say you've got, you know, 200 schools. 
within the first tournament, you're going to be down to like 48. And then the next tournament comes and they sometimes they only take the top three out of those. So now you're down to like 12. And four of them get a bye and eight of them have to fight for their life. And then you run, you run, you run, and you find the best team or the best individual. Um, and it makes sense. So like a Daniel Cormier, his entire life will be the, and I'm, I'm not perfect here, but he'll be like the 2008 NCAA champion at 184 pounds. He'll always be an NCAA Division One champion. Like that doesn't, he can wrestle the next year and lose or get hurt, and not even compete. He's still on his resume. He's still an NCAA Division One champion. Like, it's weird when you come and you can hold a belt like a Conor McGregor and never defend it, and you still get that accolade. Well, cool, you have the accolade, but, like, you hold up the entire next year by not – so he was, like, a champion in, like, 2015, let's say. But then in 2016, there was no lightweight champion except Conor McGregor who didn't fight. So you're well. He fought, but he went to boxing. Yeah, but so it's just different. Like when you hold up everything, so tournaments don't allow things to be held up. So you can call it the PFL season one champion, or you can say it's the PFL twenty eighteen champion. When you repeat, that's an amazing thing. If you can stay at the same weight and repeat, that's an amazing thing. If you can, you know, beat new talent that comes in, that's an amazing thing. But like. It's every year you get a chance to be the best. And how do you? How and do you, that makes sense to a lot of American athletes. It and how, make how sense do you? How do you like this, this matchmaking game? How do you like their scoring system? Because like they, it's the same thing, right? Like so, if you get a win, I think it's two points. If you get a finish, it's three. If it's in the first round, it's six. How do you? How do you find yeah. that kind of a scoring system to kind of progress up, up, up the ladder? Well, if you don't have a chance to directly face. Say you and I are in this pool of athletes at the beginning, and we're not going to face each other because we can only have two or three fights before they choose their final eight. There's got to be something that can separate you and I. If we're both three and zero, oh, or we're both, say we're both two and one, like what gets us into the tournament? You know, did you submit both of your guys and I won a couple close decisions? Well, you probably deserve the spot. Kind of like you know, like in wrestling, if you pin someone, you get X amount of points for your team. And if you get a decision, you get X amount of points for your team. And if you win in overtime, shows it's a close match, you get X amount of points for your team. So it's staggered to show the dominance of a team going through. So when you talk about like Iowa wrestling under Dan Gable winning like 19 NCAA championships in a row, it's because they brought their individuals to a tournament and whatever results they got, they got. But every time they won a match, they got a certain amount of points that came back to the team because of how they did it. If a guy pins everyone on his way through, like that's a great thing for your team. You're right. And it shows like major dominance, let alone just beating someone by two or three points. So um, yeah, if, if they're going to have such a big pool of guys to try to pull the tournament, like playoff structure from, then yeah, there's got to be something that, that separates them. And that makes sense to me. Now going back to you, um, and, and talking about bonuses, did you ever get a bonus for uh, taking out Hallman? I did, I did. So Dana was pretty upset uh, at his, his outfit. <clears throat> and I remember being a little disappointed. I was actually, I went from like soul crushed to like jubilant in the matter of 10 seconds. <clears throat> so 
Um, I don't know who was closest to Dana. I think there was an athlete right next to the podium. And then there was Vitor Belfort and then myself. And, um, and this is the UFC 133 press conference. And I came out of the fight pretty healthy, so sitting there happy and, and bouncy and ready to go. He announced the TKO winner, and I thought, man, that's my chance. Like, I hit him with some mean elbows, and it was a fun fight, and he had my back, and I got out of back control, so I changed the tide, and the crowd, ah! And he gave it to Vitor, and I was kind of like, cool, and I'm sitting next to Vitor, and I definitely wasn't going to say anything, but I was like, man, screw this guy. He's got like a Playboy model for a wife, and he's already rich. And houses in Brazil are not that expensive. Like, he doesn't need the 50 grand, Dana. You know, and then he went, there was no submission. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, like just didn't enter my my thoughts. So he started on the spiel about um, being upset and then just for getting those shorts off TV. And I just, my eyes got big and he gave me the bonus and that, ah! <laughs> you know, like, cool. I can buy like a house or an investment property or pay off some college loans or do something, you know what I mean? Like do something helpful that was life-changing. Like my pay inside the UFC, I could probably be bitter, bitter about. You know, like I came in and fought as a replacement in a title contender fight. So I was fighting someone in the top five. Chris Lytle, if he won, he was getting a title shot. So he was in the top three to five at the time. And Condit obviously was as well. And I had like 70 fights. So I was like, why can't I come in on like... A decent pay packet like why I got the league minimum like six thousand and six thousand my first contract like, are you being serious like I spent six thousand in like a couple weeks just to train and organize everything and bring in like cornermen to the fight I'm like, oh my. and that was in Australia you know like I didn't even have to fly anyone international but I'm just oh my god I'm already broke even so I had some seminar money lying around, and I bet on myself, and I was a three-to-one underdog, so wow. I was end up going to be okay, but it was like, man, I just fought in the UFC. Like, I should have, like, a year's pay sitting in my bank account, not like a normal, like, working in the U.S., $30,000 a year kind of thing. I was thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to get 20 and 20 for sure. Oh, no, here's your contract. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And it's crazy because pe pe people you know, don't like, realize that. Yeah, people don't realize no, that. And like, even like the Ultimate no Fighter, money. when they used to go six-figure contract, right? And everyone's like, "Oh, you made it!" And it's like That's thirty thousand dollars a year for three years is all it is, right? But it's six-figure. They don't mention the three years. Yeah. Like it, it's 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 tough, man. It's tough. Yeah. Um, I can work in a gas station for three years and make six figures. And, and, and I guess that's why my original question is like what originally got you into it. Because now, I mean, I guess they're making a little yeah, more. Yeah, it was just sport for me. It was just yeah. competitive. And yeah. it was that question of like, can I use this ad hoc BJJ stuff plus my, you know, immense, you know, history in wrestling um, to be successful in watching guys like watching Coleman, Don Fry, who was a wrestler that liked to strike. Um you know, Tito Ortiz, who wasn't a Division One guy. He was a, a JUCO, like junior college. And he had he had accolades, you know. Like, he could have wrestled Division One, um, And did wrestle Division One guys. Like, I've seen a match with him and Chael Sonnen. You know, then watching Chael Sonnen and Randy Couture. But then you kind of put Randy on a pedestal being an Olympic, you know, alternate. Um, I had Matt Hughes on a pedestal. You know, he became UFC champ. And he was, I mean, he used to bash me. It was embarrassing. It was frustrating. But I was 17, 18 
maybe 19 at the most by the time um, he and I separated ways uh, on, on the mats. But um, it, it didn't seem like it was that far of a stretch to follow in their footsteps. And you saw like how manhandled, like they manhandled a lot of people. And I'm like, well, as long as I don't fight another wrestler, I'm going to be okay. And sure enough, if you look back at my career, like a lot of my losses are other wrestlers. It was just where I spent time on my back and lost the decision. So when did the, um, I, I have to bring it up, only because a few people, I, I told them that I was having you on this week and they straight away uh, asked about it too. When did the whole manscaping stuff begin and, and what was the reasoning behind that? I mean, obviously the one that I remember was the arrow, right? And Yeah. You know, at the time I'm like, are you trying to tell people where to hit? Because the arrow's like pointing up. Um, but then you yeah. also, uh, there was one time you did... Uh, it wasn't the bad, it, 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 tap out logo. Or tap was out. It, yeah, it was. Was, it, was that more of yeah. a sponsorship thing to pick up some extra dollars, or, or what? What was well, kind of going yeah, on they, there? Yeah, they'd sponsored me, and I, I said, you know, like if I could shave a tap out logo in my chest, I would. And um, skyscraper, like skyscraper, was there at one of the one of the sh- at this show in Toronto, and he organized like a barber from New York and brought him in. And he brought in like a suitcase and I laid down on my hotel bed on, on fight morning with a um, t-shirt next to me, just a big tap out t-shirt. And um, he just made little cuts, carved everything out and then started getting into the details. And before you knew it, like I stood up and you could make out what it was. It was amazing. And, and it was really fun. So they sponsored me for two fights and then um, the threat of Reebok coming in kind of pushed everyone out the door and for my last few fights there was you know barely any sponsor money unfortunately um but that was that was a really good time like that was fun and what was the reasoning behind your your manscaping was it just a bit of fun like because i know you did stars as well or was it to put your opponent off or like what what was your like real reasoning behind it all um just i mean honestly like fight day is boring you can't run around. You can't, you, you feel like you don't want to waste a bunch of energy. You know, they say energy begets energy, but I'm not going to go out and like walk seven or eight, nine, 10 K through a city. You know what I mean? And just wear my legs out. You know, I'm not going to eat all day. I'm not going to play video games and just sit down and have my back and spine compressed all day. So just trying to keep with minimal effort, a bit of activity through the day. And that was just one of the things that would take, you know, like a good hour, hour and a half of my day and just playful and, you know, keeps your mind off the fight for the most part. Um, when I wrestled in high school, I always used to pull like soccer socks up really high, like close to my knees. And the more confident I was, the higher the socks would be. If I was wrestling someone really good, I was actually like a bit more humble and I, I only pulled the socks up a little bit. You know, like, I don't know, I guess teenage logic there, right? So um, it, was, it was a bit of fun like back then. And I guess this probably was just part of the personality kind of making a, a return but the the first time i did it i was fighting a guy that trained at tiger muay thai he was from south africa um had a few muay thai fights and a bit of bjj but i saw him in a grappling comp online and i was like no way like if he doesn't hit me i'm i'm, I'm gonna smash this guy so i decided to do like a little goatee as a target and did the arrow pointing to it and you know had a bit of a laugh like at the stare downs and all that stuff like you're gonna have to hit me you're gonna have to chin me to beat me you know and um i think double leg takedown head and arm choke fights over happy days and then i had to sort of stick with it after that 
So it just became a thing. And then the tap out's the only time I veered from it. When I went with the big tap out logo, I, I veered from the arrow and did that. And um, yeah, back to the arrow for the rest of them. Nice. Nice. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess it kind of suits you moving to Australia then too, right? Because I always say like, that's the one thing about Aussies. We, we like that little bit of a lurrican, you know, we, we, we like to have a little bit of a laugh. And I, I remember obviously with my American friends, we always had that debate when Connor first came out, um, you know, a lot of them didn't like his kind of like uh, yeah. spiel where us as Australians, we were kind of laughing at it, but that's just because we're like, ah, oh, he's, you know, talking a bit of shit and, it is what it yeah. is, and we kind of yeah. enjoyed it. And I'm a Mar Australian, so I've got both. I've got the whole like, he's an asshole, but he's entertaining. So, so when, do, you, do you judge him? Do you judge him as a character, or do you judge him as a person? You know what I mean? That's so, it. Like, no, and look, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Like, I, I think over the years now, he has crossed some lines. So, you know, at the very beginning of his career, I was laughing, and I was like, "Look, it's all playful. It's it's a bit of you know smack talk and this and that." But then, you know, as as the years go on, there were a few instances where you're like, "Yeah, he's crossed a few lines." Like, you know, um, yeah, it it is what it is. But he pissed, I mean, he pissed Khabib off, right? <laughs> he hit some old man at a pub. Family religion, yeah. He pissed him off. He smacked the old guy in the pub, right? So there, there, yeah. there, there's, oh. a, there's a few cases. But listen, you now, um, obviously, you're taking like a lot of your experience and, and, and you're, uh, I guess, passing it forward in, in, in multiple ways. Um, you've been announced as the, the national um, IMAF coach for the, the, the Team Australia. Um, obviously, that's been pretty quiet at the moment. Yeah, it's been a quiet year. I mean, we, we announced um, uh, an entire staff, so... Ben Ewan, former UFC fighter, now fights for Ryzen, and a student that I scholarshiped uh, out at Tiger Muay Thai as an assistant coach, and uh, Renato Subotic, who you know came from Italy. Um, he's over here training with some really high-level people. You know, he does a lot of open mat stuff at his gym, UFC Rockdale, and, and lets pros and, and amateurs kind of come in and mix it up and do a bit of like higher-paced sessions. It's not like, hey, we're going to teach an armbar today. You know, like straight into like you know, somewhat live drills, still drills, and then a bit of sparring to finish. Um, and he gets a lot of good people around him. And, you know, he works with Martin Newen and, and a couple other, you know, high-level guys and girls. So um, his knowledge of IMAF and obviously of MMA uh, kind of coalesced into offering him uh, an assistant coaching spot. But we've been just dormant because we can't do anything. You know, we were, we were every step of the way, like, if this happens, we're going to announce this. If this happens, we're going to announce this. And then nothing, everything got shut down and went the opposite way. So it was like, well, <laughs> we'll just wait till next year. Let, let me ask so, you, though, um, how does the IMAF work? Is it open to anyone? Like, is it a case of that you uh, hold specific tryouts and people come in and try out? Or is it more as, as a head coach that you talk to specific gyms and see who they've got in their gyms and, and kind of take it in that way? Like, is it more an in invitational based thing or is, is, well, it's going to, it's going to be a bit of both now. So I'll give you the history of it. So I first came across IMAF through my UFC cornerman, Ed Bavlock, um, who's in Melbourne and he took a team and I'm not sure if it was just, you know, it, the power of the internet basically, which is how I found all my fights back in the U S like I never fought at home when I lived in the U S you know, I'd never had to like sell tickets. I was always the away guy. 
but also it was a time where MMA was a bit of a thing. So people would just show up just to watch fights, you know, where now the best guys in the world are on TV for free every, every other night. So people aren't walking down to the local to watch it. Um, so the power of the internet, uh, somehow got Ed connected with IMAF and he brought a couple of his athletes and then coaches that he knew and liked. Um, you know, he kind of just said, Hey, like I've come across this thing. Would you guys want to go as well and do like a bit of a, like represent Australia. So there were times at the IMAF worlds in the first, you know, six, seven years where Ed, uh, brought his athletes where they'd get to the other country, but they'd never met the Australians that were also going. So it was kind of like awkward. Like you sort of got to, you know, introduce yourself and say, Hey, I get, we're all team Australia, whether or not the other team or the other people felt like that. It was like, well, we're just this gym from wherever. And we've just shown up to compete. Um, but he did a really good job trying, trying, trying to make it like, Hey, this is, we're still Australian. We're, we're here fighting against the world kind of thing. Um, and over the years, it got a bit more like that where it was a bit of a team, but it was still a very scattered effort. Um, because it was just a couple coaches that again, had heard about it. Um, so he was going to move to Ireland, but then COVID hit. So as part of his moving to Ireland, we did this big Oceana tournament um, where I was actually able to help put a couple guys on. So it was that invitational in a, in a sense for the, the Oceana um, because I matchmake. So I have a pretty big list of coaches and athletes. And so he's one of the top amateurs. He's one of the top amateurs. He wants to compete and he's pretty good. You know, like let's get these guys – Let's get these guys a spot. We had a really good showing in March, uh, early March, before everything shut down. And um, we were excited for the year because we, we ran some tryouts for those. Again, mostly invitational, but we did put it out to the public. Um, and we planned on doing the same thing, like inviting people in to do tryouts, have workouts together, try to see most people in the same room. But we've got to be able to trust people from like Perth to report back with an accurate level of someone's skill when we can't get a guy from Perth and Melbourne in the same room to assess them. So it's going to be, is there any point though, how you go like is there any point while. though, like you've, you've got the Australian team. Is there a point like say yeah. in March, you've, you've got a tournament coming up. Is there a point that you go, okay, a month out, we are going to fly everyone in and kind of house them or no, it, that it, it's not at that. Well, the hard part is the who's flying them in, who's housing it. You know, like, we're not Russia or Bahrain where we have like a prince just funding it through the government. So yeah. until we can get some sponsorship, um, and I know Richie Cranny's, you know, really working on that angle um, to try to maybe even run some of the smaller events and get some sponsorship money and some maybe ticket money and revenue coming through the door to then spend it back on the best guys to go do the best thing, you know, the worlds and the, the Oceanas and, and things like that. Um, so, at the amateur level in wrestling, I mean, we have to fly ourselves everywhere. If we're going to go do off-season wrestling and, and try to go, like, on the Olympic pathways and things like that, you know, like, it's hard. Unless Home Depot or someone's sponsoring you, it's a really difficult thing, you know. And you only get anything from the American government, and this is, like, recent, like, in the last 15 years. You know, they've they've started putting out, like, a $10,000 bounty on a silver medal and 20 on a... Uh, a gold or something like that, you know, so it's, it's, it's tough, you know, so a lot of amateur athletes get it that, you know, you're, you're putting your time in and parents know, you know, from the time you're a kid to the time you're wherever you go, they know it, it, it could be potentially expensive. 
Well, yeah, over here as a kid, we over here as a kid, we um we had the I guess our version of the Girl Scouts cookies, but like it was just boxes of chocolate. I remember as a kid, you'd have a basketball tournament coming up all the time, and I was like, "You want to buy chocolate? You want to buy chocolate?" And you literally go around just literally two dollars at a time, you know, two three dollars at a time, and that 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 was kind of how we'd sell frozen steaks and frozen pizzas for wrestling. That was a fundraiser for about ten years in a row, you know, and if not, it was Snickers and peanut butter cups and. You know, all that, yeah, it gets an eyebrow raise out of everyone, those Reese's peanut butter cups. Um, but yeah, it was the same thing, you know, selling magazines, just whatever you could, selling discount cards to like 10 local businesses that would give you 25, 30% off on your order. So you could sell that card for like 20 bucks and hopefully they'd get $20 in savings through using it for the year. Um, but, you know, there's parents that sort of look at sport and go, yep, I'm going to have my kid in sport. Da, 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 da. Ooh, this is getting expensive. I hope he doesn't get too good. <laughs> well, know, it is, it is, and it, it, it's a massive commitment. It's a massive commitment because yeah, it's it's I mean, like years. It just goes on and on, and and not even just the tournaments. Like for for I remember, you know, as I say, I had a basketball background, and it was, you know, even buying the shoes, right? And then as a kid, yep. right, you want the Jordans, and and like they're not cheap, you know, and and you yep. and because you you you're playing every day. Like whether it be on the schoolyard, whether it be at practice, whether you're beating those shoes you're up, beating those shoes up real quick. So every like few months, it's like and another pair of shoes, and it, it adds up. It really does. And then yeah. you know you had player registration, then you had court fees every week, and then you had this and that, and it just team uniforms. I mean, as I say, a lot of the times the teams would try to fundraise to some degree, but like there is a massive cost associated with it. Yeah, so it's it's with with IMF. I mean, the the athletes are going to have to meet us halfway or better most of the time. Like, we can organize the events so we can, you know, uh, get ourselves over to Worlds. You know, my coach paid for his ticket to Worlds every year. His athletes paid their own way. There was no, there wasn't even like a big, I guess, uh, organization. IMF. It was just IMF was a world organization, and these couple Aussie coaches went, yeah, we'll participate. And be Australian and fly the flag, but there's no Aussie team. You know, there's no there's no office in in Sydney CBD that's working on IMF Australia every day. You know, and even now that we have a little bit of a team, it's still very much volunteer effort put in. Not much come out. No, you know, we got to find ways to raise revenue. It's not there's nothing just there for us. You know, to offer. So um, yeah, it's 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 exciting to start something from the ground up. Um, and I'm sure it's going to be frustrating at times, but in the end, like to run these, these Oceanas and stuff like that, if you can't fly in from, you know, Melbourne or, or Sydney or wherever to go to Queensland or wherever it's going to be, spend a couple hundred bucks to fight like potentially three times in a weekend and experience like international competition, but you'll fly over there to like go to schoolies or something similar. You know what I mean? Like, come on. So hopefully the draw of that experience is enough because in the end, like for us as coaches, that's what it's about too. Like I'm super excited to get to see 50, 60 national flags flying in an opening ceremony and then watch athletes show up at breakfast on day two with black eyes and then know that they have a fight that night, you know, and just watch them grind through and do their thing and see some of the, the trials and tribulations and even the controversy, like it sucks sucks especially when you're on the wrong side of a bad call but like it's all part of the experience you know it's it's 
you know, it's right in there with like the smells and the sounds and, oh, there's that drama of, you know, the Russian versus the, the guy from France and the guy didn't tap, but the ref and the mama, 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 you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. And some of the stories I hear are just the most random things that stick out in people's brains. And I think that's, that's the beauty of it too. Like we're all there experiencing the same thing, but we all have different memories because we paid attention to different parts. So yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be cool, but this year has been a uh, frustrating. Well, it has for everyone, but I guess look while we wait for IMAF to potentially kick off again, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but I mean, that's with anything right now. Like, you know, my partner's in New York. I'm like, open the damn borders. That's me, right? Like, <laughs> um, but while you're waiting for that to happen, so we've gone from pros, obviously amateurs, and now we go to the first timers. You've just recently. It's not your your first Winter Warrior series because I know you you help with other series, but it's your yeah. your first first like your first Winter Warrior series. Um, you know what? A how how has it started? I know it's only you're only two days in. Um, you know, yeah. are, are you already getting the excuses with the weather? Because I mean, we've had bad weather. Like, have have, yeah. have you? And and I only say that because we've had past series where like people have got text messages or coaches have got text messages saying, "I can't come in today; it's windy outside." So, how yeah. how have the guys been receiving it? Um, and and what are you like? Just being your first official uh, series, what are you expecting out of this series? Um, so. Doing the one I've just done gives me a little bit of insight into like like why people are doing it. It's probably the biggest reason like to keep in mind is like why these people um, have joined the series. In the end, the sport's the sport, but everyone gets something different from it. Kind of like what I said about that tournament series. Like if we all went to Bahrain for the IMF Worlds for four days, we'd all have way different stories because we'd have our eyes and ears caught by different happen happenings. So um, I think and I know this will be true, like I'm gonna learn people's stories before I know everyone's name. Like I'll probably know a little bit about their physicality and their mentality before I even nail the 30 names or 25 names in the room, matching faces with names. So um, it, it's, it's gonna be a unique journey. Like there's gonna be some people that are in there because they're shy and I'm, I'm introverted at times, but when I go extroverted, I'm goofy and playful and you know what I mean? Like, so we'll see like how that bounces off some people, you know, and you, you got to kind of read the room. It's not as simple as just, Hey, go do that. Like how you say something to a certain person is going to really affect how they take it. So I'm going to have to be a bit of a chameleon at times as well. And my assistant coaches are going to have to do the same. Um, Yes, it's 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 unique. Like you, you talk to people on a group level, but then when you break everything down back to like individual pairs, even pairing people up, there might be times I have to like break up a pair of people because they're just not meshing and gelling, and they they speak a different language, and one's really patient, one gets frustrated easy, blah 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 blah. So um, I haven't had but just one workout with them, and it was all solo. There's no partner drills on this first workout, and today I didn't actually lead because I'm not a I'm not a qualified PT. I don't have like a cert three or four. So we have another MMA fighter uh, at our gym, Salani Mila. He's like seven and oh, eight now. And um, he, he's a qualified PT. So I've, I've given him that morning with my assistant. So I'll get a report hopefully later today as to how everyone went and, and what, what the content was because I left that up to him. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like 
any chance to stay on the pillow at 425 in the morning, people are going to take, you know, so we've got to have that like welcoming vibe. We've got to create that culture of where people want to show up. Um, they want to show up to have the fun. They want to show up because they know if they do, there's an energy that carries you throughout the day that's different than if you're sluggish coming off the pillow at you know 9 a.m. and just walking out the door with a coffee. Um, but also, hopefully, we can garner that like team atmosphere where you're showing up because if you don't, your partner and your you're favorite down the partner team. too are going to be without you. You know, imagine there's only two heavyweight guys. Right. Imagine there's only two atom weight girls. If I don't show up, she's going to have to wrestle some smelly 50 year old 90 kilo guy because everyone else has a partner. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's um, it's one of the things where hopefully they start to to bond together and they show up because of each other. And that becomes something just a bit more magical than just, hey, we're training. So hey, we're getting fit. Hey, talk, we're losing weight. Talking about names, and I'll, and I'll only do this because this is a throwback to my series, is uh, Emma Von Ryan doing, uh, helping you out with this one? Or is she with the CFS? Emma Von Ryan is, yeah. my, is my five-day-a-week offsider. She's a champion. Yeah, okay. I've been training with Emma for like three years now and um, really come to value just her, her presence on the mat. Like there's times where she'll teach a class or two and then she doesn't stick around uh, for a workout. And I know she probably worked out during the day, but I actually get a bit sad to see her go when I know we have a training session on that she's she's going to walk out on. Um, but, yeah, I love having her. So even at uh, the CFS series in Kirui, she she was my offsider for the two days a week I was there, and she did one day um, with John Levin himself. Sorry, I'm just walking through the house to get on a phone charger. That's all good. We we get it. We get a tour. This is this is the new MTV Cribs. That's it. MTV Cribs with the big the big cat scratching pole behind me, so we can sit six foot in the air and lord over the household. I'm surprised he hasn't made an appearance yet. Before we um before we got live, he was crawling all over my shoulders and all over my desk upstairs. So nice. So yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, obviously no, Emma's, Emma. Emma's awesome, yeah, Emma. Emma was. I know she from the blue corner she was from the blue corner she was on my team so i totally you know uh no emma and the other name that i'll I'll do a throwback he's actually i think a competitor this 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 series i saw him post uh tristan uh he tristan yeah he 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 did our series as well but weeks out he he obviously got injured and he wasn't able to complete it and i saw a post from him the other day saying I'm finally getting back on that horse and I'm going to obviously try to complete what, what, um, and another one from the blue corner. So just make sure that. Yeah. Yeah. So Emma and, and him recognized each other, which was really cool. And that's where I started to gain a bit of his story. I'm like, how do you guys know each other? Oh, he was in my season and that, da, 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 da. and they, they had their little chat and I got to learn a bit about, you know, how, how he enjoyed the season, but how he hasn't trained in quite a long time. And yeah, he's, he's pretty excited. So. No, so the only thing I will the only thing I will ask is that when it comes to picking corners, he he must remain in the blue one. So he started as a blue corner. He started as a blue corner. He's got to finish as a blue corner. But look, we'll we'll start to wrap it up because obviously we we are getting to that time anyway. Um, I will though ask though is is this series it started or like I know that with most series you have tryouts and stuff. But if anyone wants to join this series, is it too late? Do they have to wait for the next series? No. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely not too late. So we, we have we have more uh, space in the room. I'd love to have, you know, 50. Um, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And I might have to build a whole separate gym to house 50 people. Um, but we had 25 our first day. And um, I'd, I'd be comfortable with like up to like 32, 33 in that room. So uh, I've talked to Richie and Fadi at Winter Warrior. And we've even went back through the list of people that couldn't make the tryouts for whatever reason. So our tryouts were on like Saturday morning, Sunday morning. We did a Wednesday night, but none of them were at 5 a.m. So there might be people that say, hey, I, I work weekends or that that doesn't suit me. I'm at church or I'm with my family and I, I can't, you know, um, make those times. But if, if it's training at 5 a.m. that that we're, we're signed up for, we'll Maybe the tryout should be on a Monday at 5 a.m. and see see who wants to show up. So um, we had some people show up today, I think two, maybe even three, that would have come in today and treated today as their trial. Okay. Just to get a, a feel of the gym, the coaching staff, the program, the the teammates um, that are there, and obviously get a feel for getting off that pillow at 4.15, 4.25 in the morning. So, um, yeah, it's still wide open. Um, you guys can message me. Uh, straight at Brian Ebersol through Instagram, through Twitter, through Facebook. I have two Brian Ebersol pages on Facebook, so you can't miss me there. Um, or even get a hold of Wimp to Warrior directly off their website. And um, yeah, we'd be happy to have anyone in the gym that still wanted to uh, to try to make a go of it. So why the uh, two two Facebook pages? Is there like a split personality thing going on? Well, I had one. Uh, that was my old, old page and I converted it because I had over 5,000 friends when I was in Tiger Muay Thai. Like, I'd meet three, 400 people a month out there. So I was getting inundated with friend requests and I finally hit my limit. And I, someone taught me how to turn it into like a, like an athlete page, you know, like a band or a business or this or that. So then it's like a like page instead of a friend page. Um, so that's under Brian Ebersol. And then I made a, um, I made a, a page for my matchmaking work. So it was, you know, not family, friends, pictures of food going up. It was all about sport and obviously a bit more Australia based, even though some of my American friends have found me and friended me and all that stuff. Um, but that's where I'll share like techniques and dad jokes and nice. the rest. Nice. So um, that one I had it as Ebersol XFC for a while, but then I started matchmaking another show in Melbourne called Demolition. So I actually just went and changed. I don't want to be like, because you can't really, I couldn't do like Ebersol XFC a certain way. Like it actually got weird with me, said that can't be your last name. You can't use that. So I had to like try to trick the algorithm and the program. So I didn't want to try to add demolition to that as well. So I just finally put Brian Ebersol and I put like nickname in parentheses, the matchmaker. Um, and then I've changed my description a little bit. So yeah, I've got two that are Brian Ebersol now. And just cool. like I said, makes it easy for me to find. Cool. Or people to find me, sorry. Cool. Well, look, the last thing um, I'll, I'll ask you on just before we leave, I always like to get a, a few fighter picks, but um, the, the only one I'm after for today is only because it is uh, the Halloween fight, which is uh, this week, which is Anderson Silva's last fight uh, versus yep. Uriah Hall. I'd like to get your opinion on that. How do you, do you think it's a good fight to go out on? Uh, how, how do you see that fight going down? Uh, I, I think it's a good fight to go to go out on. I mean, Uriah Hall's proven to be a very durable and capable athlete, um, and he's da- you know he is dangerous. But I think he'll fight the style of fight that brings out the best in Anderson Silva. We're going to see 
maybe a bit of clinching, but we're, I don't think we're going to see any single legs and double legs and, you know, high-level throws. It's, it's going to be a good stand-up fight. And um, Anderson, you know, people always talk about his offense, but his defense has always been very, very good, except that time he decided to mess around and Weidman caught him making faces and being weird. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he can put on a, a defensive masterclass with someone like Uriah Hall. And, um, you know, I, I think he's going to come away with a win. Whether he finishes him or not, I don't know. Um, but I know with Uriah coming to attack and play, I think we'll get to see one of the one of the better defensive performances from Anderson Silva again. Nice. Well, there you have it. As I said, like um, you, usually I say what's the best way of reaching you, but we've just been through the whole Facebook uh, page comment and everything. So I'm just going to thank you straight straight off the bat. I, I really do appreciate the time. I know you're one of the the busier guys at the moment. As I said, everyone's in lockdown. Everyone's got a bit of free time, but you've got multiple things going on. So I really do appreciate you tuning in. Um, I hope to get you on again once the, uh, the, the borders reopen and maybe we can have some IMAF news or, or, or something of the sort. But uh, no, I, I really do appreciate it. As I said, you set me straight probably 10 years ago, I think, it, or close to 10 years. It's probably eight, eight, uh, eight years ago. Um, I took lessons from that and, and I took a lot from today. And yeah, as I said, I can't thank you enough. But until next time, that is it. I'm a way. I'm a way.